Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Good morning. Will you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word? Today's scripture comes from Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. You know, whatever else we might say about us as humans, one thing I think we'd all agree is that we are story people. We love stories. We live in stories. We long for a great story. In ancient Greece, you have Homer singing the tales of Odysseus around a campfire. In medieval Europe, you have pilgrims telling body stories as they journey to Canterbury. And we today binge shows on Netflix or one of the other 35 streaming services I'm somehow paying for. But whatever it is, we love stories. We live in stories. We long for a great story. And going back to ancient times, people recognized that all stories have a basic structure. You have a beginning or a setting. You have some kind of tension that happens, comes to an apex of that tension, a resolution, and then an ending, a wrapping up. All stories follow this pattern. If it's a classic quest story, for example, like The Hobbit or Iron Man or The Odyssey or something, you have a person who's living a normal life, some tragic event occurs, the person experiences loss, it comes to a sort of rising challenge, the person overcomes, and then they return to their normal life, but changed. Or if it's the classic love story, the rom-com, boy meets girl, Boy does something stupid to lose girl. Can I get an amen? Boy gets girl back. They live happily ever after. Or if the producers want to be cruel, boy gets girl back. They have a kiss, and then he gets run over by a logging truck. Now, that's the worst version. Pro tip to the young husbands out there, if you want your date night not to end in weeping, preview the ending beforehand. But all basic stories, all stories follow this basic pattern. It's really hardwired into us as humans. And in every story, what ultimately matters is the ending. The whole story matters, but it's the ending that matters the most. The ending of a story is where everything finally makes sense. That's what Wanda was doing, right? Or the ending is what distinguishes whether a story is a comedy, whether it ends well, or a tragedy, a sad, beautiful, tragic story that doesn't end well. And it's in the ending of a story that really affects us the most. When you close your iPad, turn off the TV, or close the cover of the book, it's the, it's the ending that really stays with us. I can think of a long time ago, walking out of the theater after seeing Schindler's List, or when, when shedding tears, when Percy and Fred Weasley finally reconcile, and then 
One of them, we won't tell you, is killed by an explosion. I remember sitting on my front deck after finishing The Time Traveler's Wife, a very powerful novel, and just weeping. It's the end that really matters because the ending of a story shows us what the story was about and it clarifies and it amplifies. And now, after two years of preaching and teaching through the great gospel according to Matthew, the retelling of the greatest story of all time, we've now come to the ending. And it's sad. It's bittersweet for me and for Pastor Kevin as well. And in the short and powerful conclusion to the great story of Jesus, everything really does come together. This is Matthew's last chance to say something to us, and he knocks it out of the park. And in this conclusion, Matthew gives us what he wants us to take away of all the things that we've learned about Jesus. We've had 28 chapters of rich, life-changing stories. We've had about 24,000 words that Matthew wrote. We have dozens of stories about Jesus, and now it all comes down to these five little verses. What does Matthew want to leave us with? Well, in this very final scene of Matthew's gospel, we get a really clear direction and also a clear hope. As one Matthew scholar has described it, these last five verses of Matthew are like a great railroad station where all the lines come and converge and, and, and find their terminus. And we'll see today that these five verses are, are very clearly built around Four instances of the word all. Four instances of the word all. And, and we'll look at those in a minute. But before we get there, we have to look at what happens right before Jesus gives us these four alls. It's what happens in verses 16 and 17. Let me read them for you again. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, you may recall that Jesus's ministry was way up in the north in Galilee. That's a long ways away from Jerusalem. That's where it's, it's out of the center of power. It's where the disciples came from. It's where Jesus did almost all of his ministry. It's, it's really among the poor and the needy and, the, and those who are not connected to the center of power down in Jerusalem. And that's where he ministers. And then at the last week of Jesus's life, he and the disciples are down in the south in Jerusalem. And it is a crazy week. They enter in with this great fanfare, what we call the triumphal entry. Then Jesus causes this great tumult in the temple area. There's this sharp conflict, very open conflict between Jesus and the religious and political authorities. And then shockingly, Jesus is betrayed, arrested, arrested, physically beaten, and then crucified and dead and buried. And then it's accompanied by earthquakes and reports of people alive again. All this happens so quickly, the disciples are just bewildered by it all. And they hear from some of the women disciples that they've seen Jesus and that Jesus sent them a message. We saw it last week in chapter 28, verse 10. Jesus said to them through the women, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. And so now, probably about a week later, they've, they've taken the long journey back to their familiar place of Galilee. It's where they grew up. And now it's filled with vivid memories of, of them being with Jesus over the last few years. Jesus teaching them things that just blew their minds and expanded their hearts. Memories of seeing this powerful and mysterious Jesus healing people, casting out demons, feeding thousands of people with just five loaves and two fish. And now they're back here in their old stomping grounds without him. 
and they head to the hills to meet with him. And did you notice that little detail that Matthew gives us? He says that there were 11. And it feels very odd. It feels very incomplete because this 11 is a sobering reminder that for the last three years, there had always been 12. That now there are 11 because one of their own, a close friend of theirs, Judas, had betrayed their Lord and then killed himself. And all of this is a very sober reminder that even though they themselves, the rest of the 11, had not betrayed Jesus like Judas had, they'd all failed him. The very last night that they were together, when he was in his greatest hour of need, they all fled to save their own skins. And so this is the tone, this is the feeling as they make that five or six day walk back to Galilee. And then from afar, at first, they see him. They see that he looks familiar, this face and profile, but there's also something different about him. And then all of this is explains what happens in verse 17, that once they see him, they bow down and worship. And at the same time, it says some of them doubted. Now, it's very important for us to understand that what, what the word doubt here doesn't mean in the kind of English sense of being skeptical, like, I doubt that's really Jesus. But when it said this sense of, of hesitancy, this initial hesitancy that they, especially from afar, they, they're filled with joy, they're, they're, they're worshiping him, but they, their minds are blown. How can this be? Did the, is this really the same Jesus? He looks different, but it's still him. And can all this stuff about the resurrection be true? In fact, I think a, maybe a little better translation here would be hesitated. That is, at least some of them were hesitant. And we can ask ourselves, why, why were they a little hesitant? Well, it's precisely because of what had happened when they were with Jesus on his last night, that they had abandoned him. And I'm sure Peter and James and John remembered very clearly what Jesus had said. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. And so they're understandably hesitant. I mean, imagine if, if you and I were part of like a, a really tight knit group of, of 12 really close friends. Maybe it's a basketball team or a church staff or employees of a nonprofit or a military platoon or whatever it is. And you've been together and all in. You have the super inspiring leader that you love who's changed your life. And, and then the leader hits a crisis and one of you actually lies and sells him out. And then you all abandon him in fear. And then you get this message hey, meet me in a couple of weeks. Imagine the emotional turmoil that they're feeling. Now, I've spent sleepless nights and worried days over stupid things I've said and done that don't even come close to what the disciples did. And this is the situation they find themselves in. So the question is, how in the world is Jesus going to respond to them? And this is so beautiful. What Matthew, the way Matthew tells the story, it's so beautiful and so central to understanding how God relates to us. Notice that in this moment, rather than rebuking them, rather than being aloof towards them, rather than frowning at them, rather than being passive aggressive with them, hey, Peter, good to see you. You've been hanging around, you know, denying me in front of any servant girls recently. All the things that we would tend to do if someone abandoned us and when someone abandons us or fails us, he doesn't do. He doesn't wipe them out. He doesn't destroy them. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't embarrass them. He doesn't ridicule them. Rather, he comes to them. He welcomes them 
receives their worship, he affirms them, and then he speaks. He speaks these beautiful, gracious, inviting words to them. And with this frame of grace, let's look at the four alls briefly that Jesus says to his disciples in this intense moment. He says four alls. Here's the first one. All authority. It says, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to me. Now, if you've been reading through Matthew or listening to it, you can go back and look at it. You'll see this is a major theme in Matthew, the idea that Jesus has authority. He has authority in teaching. The people perceive that his teaching is not like just mere human. It's from God himself. He has authority over demons. He has authority over diseases. He has authority over nature. He's stilling storms and walking on water and multiplying food. He has authority in matters of divine issues of life and death. He has the authority to forgive sins, it says. He has the authority to give the ultimate interpretation of God's word. And now we learn that this authority he has is universal. It's not only on earth, but also in heaven. And I think we should think about what the apostle Paul wrote. I think Paul was thinking about this reality when he wrote these words in Philippians chapter two. Listen to them. It says, speaking of Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, a true man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth even, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I realize here in America, we don't think much in terms of like royalty or kingship, but that's what this is talking about. For Jesus to be given all authority in heaven and in earth is meaning, it means that he is now the king of the entire universe. The old term for is a cosmocrator, the ruler over all the cosmos. And all throughout Matthew, we've been seeing that Jesus is the true king. We saw it in the very beginning at his birth. We see it at the end as well. But now the claim is that he's not just the king of Israel. He's not just the king of the Jewish people. He is the king of the entire universe, heaven and earth. His jurisdiction as king is universal. And all throughout Matthew, we've also seen that Jesus likes to refer to himself as the son of man. And where he's getting that is from Daniel chapter seven. And I think it's very appropriate here on the last day of Matthew to to quote Daniel seven and understand what it means. Let me put these verses in front of you as well. Daniel writes that in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. And his dominion, his reign is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's what's going on here. The Jesus is now shown to have all authority. And this leads us to our second all, all the nations of the world. Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
Notice that crucial word, therefore. It's because Jesus is now the universal king of the entire world, there's a therefore, there's a consequence, there's an effect of that, and that is that his disciples are called to therefore go and make disciples of all nations, all people groups, countries, tribes, tongues, ethnicities, races, religions, genders, moral backgrounds, educational levels. We are to go to all people because Jesus is the king of the all the world. You see, Christianity is not just a religion for some people, but it's for all. It's for you. This morning, whether you are a high-powered, wealthy influencer or whether you feel like your life is low, and meaningless, and everywhere in between. Whether you're young, still trying to figure out who you are and what life is about with all the vigor of spring, or whether you are in your sunset years. Whether you are from LA, either Los Angeles or lower Alabama, or Nigeria, Russia, Portugal, China, or Korea, whether you are educated or uneducated, morally upright, or if you're sitting this morning in the ashes of a bunch of stupid things you've done. This message is for you because Jesus is the king over all people. And so he invites us to make disciples of all nations. In fact, it's interesting to note that in the ancient world, there were no universal religions. You realize that? like we think of as as Christianity or even Islam today. There were no universal religions. All religions are very localized based on a physical place and a culture. So there were Greek religions and Roman religions and Persian religions. Even Israel is a certain ethnic group based in a certain physical place. But at the core of Christianity is this truth, this universal reality that because Jesus is the king of the entire world, all the peoples of the world, this faith is universal in its nature because the faith that's centered in him is for all the world because he is king of all the world. All the other religions of the world are, world are we say, centripetal. They, they go inside. Christianity is centrifugal. It goes out. It spins out into the world. There's so much more in this verse, but let me just highlight a couple of things. Notice what Jesus tells his disciples to do. He doesn't just say, preach, win converts, build buildings, start programs, do good things. All those are great things to do, but he says, make disciples. I'm going to come back to this at the end, so let me just put that there. But that's the primary thing he says, make disciples. And notice again that this is something that this making disciples is something that the church of Jesus is engaged in for all the nations and people groups of the world, all of them. One of my favorite things right now, I'm a professor as well as this, and one of my favorite things is being engaged in our uh, online Hispanic language program where I teach. And it is so beautiful. They've taken some of my classes, translated them into Spanish. My Spanish is very minimal. I try to throw a few phrases in there occasionally, but they've translated them beforehand. And then we do these live syncs with the translator over Zoom. And it's all these beautiful souls from many countries in the world all gathered together, united by the Spanish language and with this translator, and to see their hunger, their hunger for God and his word. It's such a beautiful picture of the gospel going to all nations. This is why we send out missionaries. This is why we provide financial need for the financial needs so that we can take the riches of what we have and bless others. This is why many of you have been and should go on missions trips as things open back up to the DR, to Ireland or Turkey or Mexico. 
And Jesus says, how do we go about doing this? Well, the first thing he says, you do this through baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And if you were here last Sunday, you saw one of the best things we do here at church. We got to baptize people. And baptism is an old ritual that goes way back. And we saw it at the beginning of the Gospels of John the Baptist. But It is a picture of cleansing. And it's a picture of being dead and buried and then being raised to new life just like Jesus. And I love it how we do baptisms like that here at Sojourn. And don't miss that Christian Trinitarian language. We are baptized into the one name of the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. So Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. He commissions us to make disciples of all people, including baptizing them. And that leads us to our third all, all that Jesus commanded. And he says, and teaching them to obey everything or all that I have commanded you. How does Jesus say we're supposed to make make disciples of all people? We baptize them, but we teach them what he taught. And when you think back, this is Matthew's great goal, is to give us tons of examples of how Jesus taught. He didn't just do things, he modeled for us, but he taught specific things, a vision of life, a way of inhabiting the world that is centered on God, based on forgiveness of sins that we receive and the filling of the Spirit. We learn to inhabit the world in a certain way because that's what it means to be a disciple. We are following him. And now... Consequently, the ongoing work of Jesus' people in the world, his disciples, is to make other disciples by reminding people of what Jesus taught. This is why on Sunday mornings, we preach and teach from the Bible. We don't bring other books into this and talk about them, except for occasionally, you know, from the side. We preach what Jesus taught because of this command. We want to learn what he said. And as we think back through Matthew's gospel, here at the very end, let me ask you, what are, some, what are some key things? If you were to kind of sit down and read Matthew and think, what are some key things Matthew's thinking about that Jesus taught when he says, teach all that I've commanded? Well, I can think of a bunch, but let me just rifle through a few. That being a Christian is not just being outward obedience, but having an inner transformation. God sees and cares about who you are on the inside, not just your external behavior. Jesus also teaches in Matthew that Christians are ones whose lives are marked by mercy, that we forgive others who have wronged us, and that we show mercy to helping those in need. And the reason our lives should be marked by that, Jesus says, because that's how God himself is, and to be a disciple then is to be like God himself is. And we also learn Jesus commands that, and he teaches that his death and resurrection provides forgiveness for the sins that, that entangle us, and his resurrection fixes our human problem with death. And again, last week was such a great picture of that that we celebrated Easter. So being a disciple of Jesus means that we are continually learning, and we're seeking to follow Jesus more and more faithfully. We're, learning, we're seeking to obey all that he commanded us, and those things are for our good. In fact, to have faith in Jesus, friends, is to actually believe in him enough to actually listen to what he says. It doesn't matter if you say you have faith. You don't really have faith in someone if you're not willing to listen to what they advise you to do. To have faith in Jesus is to say, I want to learn all that you have taught. So all authority 
is Jesus. He commands us to go to all people. He teaches us to obey all that he's commanded. And that brings us to our fourth and final all for all time. He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We saw that Jesus started these final instructions to his disciples with this incredible act of grace. Even though they'd failed him, he commissions them and welcomes them to go into all the world. And now in these last words, he once again gives us this gracious and encouraging promise that he will be present with his people for all time, or your English translation says always. And you know, this idea of God, the God of heaven, actually being present with humans on earth is really what the Bible's about. You think back to Adam and Eve. They were happy and flourishing and thriving because they were in the garden where God was present with them. And precisely what happens when they, like us, fell and rebel against God, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And the significance of that is they did not have God's abiding presence. And then when God calls Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to initiate his gracious work in the world, to be the fountainhead of that. What does he promise them? That he'll be with them. He will go with them. And then he establishes the tabernacle and the temple as the place where he will be present with his people. And all of that culminates in the story of Jesus. If you remember way back when we started Matthew in the very first chapter, one of the things that's said about Jesus is that he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, his presence with us in the flesh. And now here at the very end of the story, he says, I will continue even after he ascends to heaven to be present with you. We understand from the rest of the New Testament, this means through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us individually and together as a church, but he promises to be present with us. And we must understand that this, this promise that ends Matthew shows us that Christianity is not just a religion. It's not just this set of things you're supposed to kind of clean up your life and be a better person and make sure you come to church, give some money. That's not what Christianity is. It's a relationship. It is having the presence of God in our lives, the very thing we long for. None of us wants to be alone and abandoned. We have a need for true presence, and this is exactly what Jesus promises us. So there's so much truth and goodness and beauty just packed in these few last verses. But I want to conclude today by just asking, what do we do with this? And I just want to give you two simple takeaways as, that I think Matthew would be happy with. I hope he would be. I'll find out, I guess. Uh, but we'll, I think Matthew would be happy with these two final takeaways. Here's the first. All of this is an invitation to be a disciple. The whole point of Matthew's book is to invite us and instruct us on what it means to be and become a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is in the business of making disciples, not just downloading content or just proclaiming truth independently of us or telling us things we have to do or a successful world philosophy or something. He wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants you to become a follower, a disciple, to join with him and learn from him. Being a disciple is so much more than just mentally adopting a set of beliefs or externally trying to practice a set of morals. It means becoming a different person by following Jesus. Being a disciple means that you're entering into a community of learners 
which is what the church is, a community of learners who are seeking to grow, not in their own effort, but empowered by the Spirit, seeking to grow in head and heart and hands. This is why if you hang around the church, you'll hear we never talk about being Christian as if it's just sort of generic, abstract idea. We talk about being a Christian. Because being a Christian means, as Jesus says back in chapter 11, that you take his yoke upon you. You're willing to submit and be guided by him because he alone offers life. That as we take his yoke upon us, we will find peace and shalom that we long for. And this invitation to be a disciple means, friends, that you're done just going through the motions of life. Being a disciple means you're turning aside from just hiding because of your shame. Being a disciple means that you're doing more than just living for the American dream, plus you also go to church. Being a disciple means living passively, disengaged, conducting your your life kind of aloofly from relationships, from everything, from church, living at the fringes and self-protection and numbness. Being a disciple means that you look to Jesus and begin to actually say, I want to learn what it means to be human. I need to learn what it means to be fully in your image, restored. And this invitation means getting baptized as well. Because this is part of what it means to say, I am not going to live passively. I want to give my life to being a disciple. And this is what the ongoing work of the Christian faith is. Broken, imperfect people like you and me finding forgiveness through Jesus' death and resurrection and now by the Holy Spirit becoming fully human as we follow Jesus, the King of the universe. And over the next several weeks, Pastor Kevin and I will be preaching a series through the little book of Titus, which I think is a great, beautiful picture of what life together as disciples looks like. So come, come back and come and learn and and let this be a season where you're learning to be a disciple. That's the first takeaway, an invitation to be a disciple. And the second is this, that all of this, as Matthew concludes, is an invitation to be a discipler, to be one who disciples others. It's interesting to think about that in the gospels, the only one who teaches is Jesus. But now in the church, we become teachers of others. In God's crazy plan and beautiful plan for the world, we are now the agents of God's work in the world. He doesn't do it through angels. He doesn't do it through just signs in the sky. He expands his kingdom. He brings people into life through other people, through other broken people, disciples who become disciplers of others. And I love the fact that Jesus doesn't just preach here at the end. He could have just preached, now go win converts or go preach the gospel. He uses this slow and personal verb, make disciples. Because you see, making disciples is not an event. It's not microwave ramen, but it's a slow-smoked brisket. It's a seven-course meal. It's not a gas station burrito on the run. It's relational and slow. To make disciples is to be in relationship with each other, Christians and non-Christians, living in community with other people, being honest and vulnerable, learning from each other, being present to each other, laughing and crying, helping each other. 
So I invite you today to not only be a disciple of Jesus, but actually lean into being a discipler of others, joyfully and willingly pouring your life energy into others. Come to the beautiful feet training. That is not just for gifted evangelists. That is for all disciples learning to be better disciplers. Find a small group of men or women and be vulnerable with them and honest with them. And you older folks, you've worked hard, Maybe you're just hitting retirement. Maybe you're retired. Please don't be lazy. You have the resources that younger people need. Be intentional. Don't just live the American dream and now you've arrived at, there's no life there. There is no life in just sort of living for yourself. I've built my padded world and now I can live for myself. You'll never find life there. Life is found in flowing like a river to other people. Don't be a dead, crusty sea, young people or old people. Instead, be ones who pour out your life into others because that's where the joy is found. That's where life is found when we pour ourselves into others. You see, we are story people. And we are all living from some story. Make this your story. Don't make your story that I'm just going to make a bunch of money and I'm going to do all these things I want to do and have this good life. And I'm also a Christian, so I'll help people. Make your story this and you will find life. Make your story that I'm going to take Jesus' yoke upon me. And a big part of that is I want to bless others and I want to invest myself in other people. That's the story that will bring you life, the true story of the world. I love to ponder how there is a silver chain that connects every Christian here in this room all the way back to this day of the Great Commission. Have you thought about that? That every Christian was mentored and discipled and taught by some other Christian. And that person was taught and mentored and discipled by some other Christian before them. And it goes all the way back in a silver chain to this day, the Great Commission. The guy who led me to Christ 30 plus years ago was named Craig. I know the guy that led him to Christ was named Fred. I don't know that person. I have no idea who influenced Fred, but somebody did. And then somebody influenced that person who influenced Fred. This is the silver chain that ties us all the way back. Don't break the chain. Be part of this glorious, beautiful story of being a disciple yourself who gives themselves to minister to others here locally and throughout the world. And this final invitation to be a disciple and disciplers, we see that Jesus ends this gospel of Matthew with this invitation to be his disciple and to give your life in grace toward others. Let me pray as we close. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.